In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Brian Kemp is rubbing it in. That was Governor Kemp signing bills into law in his opponent, David Perdue's hometown this week. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. A reminder, if you're just listening to us for the first time, Welcome to the show, and please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up later, the claims Herschel Walker made while promoting health products. It will cure any COVID on your body, EPA, FDA approved. But first, Governor Kemp's tour de force trying to turn the screws on David Perdue. Patricia, um, I'm once again uh, airing this, uh, film, uh, recording this from my car, my, my other office. Um, out on the campaign trail earlier with Governor Kemp up in uh, up in the exurbs. You've been all around Georgia this week as well, but it's been quite the busy week for the governor, hasn't it? Oh my goodness. This has been uh, some week for the governor. And this is what we predicted at the end of the legislative session, that he would have these 40 days following the legislative session to basically do one press event a day to drive home the message for his campaign that he had just executed during the legislative session. So we've seen bills on um, just about every one of his priorities. He has signed the constitutional carry bill. He has signed um, multiple bills aligning with his priorities. And he had a big one down in um, in Bonnier earlier this week and um, earlier today signed a big education package as well. So these are just, um, just the benefit of being an incumbent governor. You have uh, the power to get things done, and then you have the platform to tell people about them. I want to drill down on that event in um, in Bonaire, which one of the governor's allies said was like pettiness level ten. He said it admiringly. So, um, but first, I mean, I think the one thing we might have gotten wrong was not just one event a day. We're seeing multiple events a day. Yes, exactly. In some cases, right? Um, let's even go through this week, right? Sunday, you had um, the debate. An uneven performance from the governor. He's definitely got flustered. Um, uh, that was on Sunday at the Channel 2 Action News debate. On Monday, he gets the NRA endorsement, which was the subject of so much drama and controversy in 2018. And the same day, he met with law enforcement officials to sort of remind folks that David Perdue not so long ago said that this Georgia State Patrol was not, quote unquote, elite anymore. Tuesday, he heads down to David Perdue's hometown of Bon Air and Perry, campaigns with his first cousin, Sonny Perdue, um, and signs into law one of the biggest tax reductions and income tax slash 
at David Perdue's favorite restaurant. <laughs> and on Wednesday, signs into law another piece of legislation that Trump supporters had long sought, um, giving the GBI more powers to investigate electoral fraud. And then on Thursday, it goes up to a, a, a beautiful educational facility in Forsyth County and signs about a half dozen pieces of legislation that were all sought by conservatives um, to control how race and gender are discussed in classes, to give school officials more power to ban transgender girls from comp- competing in high school sports, to basically double an, a, a tax credit for private schools, um, to control, to outline a new process, to ban books in public school classrooms, um, and to give parents what he says is more transparency into what their students are being taught. So it really was um, a week of just camp laying it on thick, just as early voting is about to begin in Georgia. Yes. And also on Monday, when he was meeting with law enforcement, he was signing a Senate bill from Senator John Albers, which is an anti-gang initiative, increases penalties for gun violence and really toughens penalties on uh, people who are sort of repeat offenders, longtime offenders and known gang members. And we, when we had our AJC poll, we saw that crime was right up there among the top two issues for our GOP voters, right along with the economy. So that's another issue that he's been able to drill down on with these big public message events. He was surrounded by a, surrounded by dozens of uniformed law enforcement officers. But like for sure, my favorite event this week was the bill signing of the tax cut because we ha- we ha- we must set the scene, Greg. It's not just David Perdue's favorite restaurant. It's the White Diamond Grill in Bonaire. And I mean, the there is no reason to have a bill signing in this tiny little restaurant. Um, they they set up the podium like squashed, they squashed the governor between the podium and the counter. And then right behind that was the grill. And you could almost like smell the onions on the grill. And, and in front, there's like on the two top next to the governor, he has all his pens laid out. So this is not a, this is not an event space. Okay. This is, this is, this is only done to flex on David Perdue. Um, And uh, one of my favorite things that happened was that the owner of the grill would not say who he was going to vote for. He's like, I don't know. I like them both. I can't really pick. And then uh, Sonny Perdue was asked, who are you going to vote for? And he said, I'm just not prepared to answer that question right now. So um, we've got some sound from that event from WMAZ down in Macon. And of course, Monday is the first day of early voting. I know you're here with your first cousin's rival for the race. Who are you voting for? Well, actually, that's not a question I'm prepared to answer today because I'm here as Chancellor of the University System because uh, education and workforce development is part of my job. So that's exactly why I'm here. And uh, I, 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 I knew you would ask, but I knew I wasn't going to tell you, too. <laughs> It's a very sunny Purdue answer. Um, he is staying out <laughs> of this race. It's the nicest no comment you'll ever get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit of a sharp edge there if you look at that, <laughs> his actual face when he's saying it. Um, but look, I mean, uh, you're right. Th- this is not some fancy event space with lots of room. Everyone was piled into this little eatery. And just so you know the significance of this place, David Purdue, you know, he's a millionaire and he lives on Sea Island. But truly one of his favorite restaurants is is Waffle House. Like he likes kind of downscale, easy eating. And, um, you know, and he loves this restaurant. And this is the restaurant where he took his ad smith um, back in 2013 when he started crafting his image of this jean jacketed, uh, you know, outsider. Um, this is where he liked to take friends uh, for years. Um, I've been to campaign events with him there. 
uh, you know, the, when I was on the campaign trail with him back in the 2014 campaign, and we had sort of a get to know you session. It was at this restaurant. So again, there's a symbolic significance to going there. And we all remember in the weeks leading up to David Perdue deciding to enter this race, we heard warning after warning from Camp Ally saying, if he's going to get in, it's going to be scorched earth. We are not holding anything back. And I felt like this was the week where we really started. I mean, we've seen it a lot, but we've really started to see that sink in. Him going to Bonaire to go to this restaurant to sign into law the biggest tax cut in Georgia history. That was that was quite the moment. He's lighting the match and scorching he's lighting, the earth. He's lighting the match. Um, one, yeah, one quick thing on the policy here. So right now, the state income tax is 5.75%. This will cut that by a quarter point. It doesn't sound like a law that, you know, to, to your average bearer, like, oh, a quarter point, who cares? That's a billion dollars out of state coffers, um, you know, out of a $30 billion budget. So that's a very significant um tax cut, significant drop in revenues correspondingly, uh, the state will have to meet a number of benchmarks ahead. Uh, If they do meet those benchmarks in terms of revenue that comes in, then that tax rate will continue to drop. And so that was, um, I would say, sort of like the the, um, kind of the crowning economic achievement for, uh, in the governor's uh, perspective, out of this legislative session. Super happy about that. Really wanted that. And so um, for him to take his, you know, one of his biggest bills and dunk it at the White Diamond Grill, (laughs) he's saying a lot more than just here's your tax cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, and, and usually you'd see him go to somewhere in Metro Atlanta, right, to do something like this to get the maximum media attention. But he, he also knew that, hey, <laughs> reporters would love to go down to White Diamond Grill to, to write about the uh, the juicy, <laughs> the juicy feud between the two men. Sorry, I'm make, making hamburger references. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, we've also said this before. In any other legislative session, something like this would be the standout bill, but because there's so much past. Um, so, so much controversial measures passed too, from the gun law to what we'll talk about next, the education law. Um, we outlined the, gov- the, 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 the contours of the education measure earlier in the show, but the governor's allies, they, they hail these measures as a counterstroke to what they call one-size-fits-all approach to ca- classroom policy. Let's hear the governor on it. It ensures all of our state and nation's history is taught accurately. Because here in Georgia, our classrooms will not be pawns to those who indoctrinate our kids with their partisan political agendas. The presumptive Democratic nominee, and we can call her the nominee because she's facing no primary challengers, but Stacey Abrams, she says she'd, A, she'd immediately veto it, which is not a surprise. B, she worries that it would create a chilling effect on teachers who are worried about being dragged into classrooms for for teaching about um, sordid events in the nation's history, like slavery or like the internment of Asian Americans during World War II. And C, she feels like policies like this keep us from raising kids to be more resilient adults. Let's listen. We're talking about how our children learn, how they live. When you have a conversation or when there is legislation that will legitimize banning children from sports, what we're telling our most vulnerable children and their most fragile moment is that you don't belong. That's not a culture war. That is a parenting issue. That is a people issue. That's a humanity issue. And yes, we should talk about how we want every child to feel they belong in our community. When we talk about banning books, when there is legislation to lie about our history, then we are teaching our children either to tell the truth or to tell lies, to either be resilient or to manufacture the truth that they want. 
you know, Patricia, we haven't heard Stacey Abrams on every single piece of con- controversial legislation. You know, she's picking and choosing her moments to respond. Um, we've certainly heard her talk about expanding Medicaid. We've we've heard her call the permitless carry bill criminal carry. Um, but there's other pieces of legislation where she has sort of either declined comment or um, chosen other ways to, to to speak out. In this case, though, um, and 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 not just with this audio from a podcast she appeared in, but also at a an event um, uh, on Thursday in Suwannee, um, she has very forcefully come out against these education changes. Yeah, and these education changes also, I would say, got the um, loudest, most consistent, most emotional pushback from Democrats in the legislature when they were proposed initially. So I think this is a real through line for Democrats. And um, it, it it is just an incredibly complicated issue to legislate. And the debate itself was all over the place. And it is so hard to define divisive, like what is divisive? Don't teach a divisive concept. A black lawmaker said, well, I don't think that we should have rebel mascots at Georgia high schools. That's divisive. And the white lawmaker who had introduced the bill said, whoa, that's not divisive. That's sensitive. Don't talk about that. (laughs) So um, I can imagine uh, not just the chilling effect. I do think we'll see some lawsuits over bills like this. I don't really know how how a teacher in a classroom navigates around this kind of legislation, but you could just see from the debate, it is also a, it is a real, uh, to be very, you know, cut and dry about it. It's a real goldmine for activists. This activates people. This makes people upset, slightly enraged. It creates a lot of energy and the grassroots on both sides. Um, and uh, so I, I understand, I know why politicians are getting involved in these debates. Um, and I will say in the middle, as parents, we all were trying to be teachers during COVID, and that was incredibly difficult work. Um, but I think a lot of teachers in the upper grades, I have little kids, but teachers in the upper grades were seeing curriculum for the first time. Not that they weren't allowed to see it. Listen, you're almost, you're allowed to see this at any time. Um, they were finally u- using their time to look at it. Probably they, you know, they just hadn't bothered before. They're seeing it. They're disagreeing with it. A lot of these school boards also are undergoing massive political upheaval as their counties undergo massive political upheaval on a parallel track. And so this is really sort of the tinderbox of these culture wars um, are these education issues. And we will hear a ton about this from uh, Democrats and Republicans on the campaign trail right up until November. And I'm quite sure after November. Yeah, it's such a good point is that, look, even even for parents like us with little kids, we were a lot more, I got to see exactly what, for, for months, uh, as my kids were stuck at home with me, I got to see exactly what my students were learning, and frankly, what they weren't learning, right? Um, e- even though mine are younger. Um, uh, and so I, I think that reflects the urgency, I guess, of, of, of how Republican lawmakers felt like they needed to tackle this. So did Glenn Youngkin's victory, as, as we wrote about in the AJC. Um, he was able to flip a blue state as a Republican in Virginia by honing in on cultural issues, but mostly educational cultural issues. So clearly, look, we're used to debates at the legislature over K through 12 public education, but usually those debates involve financing, involve the QBE funding formula and teacher pay raises. Well, in this, in this case, those were quickly dispatched with because of the record budget that Georgia had. And Georgia had the money to fully fund education, had the money to 
uh, boost teacher pay $5,000 over the course of, of Governor Kemp's first term. And so it kind of freed up lawmakers to focus on educational policy in a way that we just haven't seen in recent Georgia history. And again, we'll be talking a lot more about that in the not so distant future. But for now, we're going to take a break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the insiders at the Political Insider blog at the AJC, and we're also two of the authors of The Morning Jolt. We, we wear a lot of hats. Uh, Patricia works on it every morning, super early. I work on it late at night. Tia, our Washington correspondent, uh, also works on it late at night. Um, we think The Morning Jolt sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and guess what? You can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now. This easy. By going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, one of the items that we will feature in the Jolt that is already out on her website is this great story from one of our new investigative reporters, Dylan Jackson, about some of Herschel Walker's um, kind of out there claims about different businesses. Let's let's listen to Herschel Walker in his own words. Do you know right now I have something that can bring you into a building that would clean you from covert as you walk through this, this dry mess? As you walk through the door, it will kill any COVID on your body, EPA, FDA approved. When you leave, it will kill the virus as you leave this here product. Then I have something, you can go and spray down this product. Do you know they don't want to talk about that? They don't want to hear about that. Well, Patricia, um, we th- let's just make it very clear. There is no magic wand product that kills COVID that we know of that is also safe for treatment of humans. I mean, I guess... I guess there is something, but it wouldn't necessarily keep the human alive. It's um, called Clorox. Yeah, it's called injecting bleach, maybe. Um, so there is, there is, but there's no product. Um, this adds to the questions that we're hearing from from the Republican rivals of Herschel Walker and the sort of uh, anticipation from Democrats that, that in the general election matchup, that issues like this, that statements like this, um, could come back to haunt Herschel Walker because we've already talked about violence against women, uh, erratic comments, um, bizarre statements about policies and about uh, 
his stances on issues, uh, misstating his academic record and his business experience. And now add to that um, a host of um, false claims, exaggerations about products that he is endorsing, that he is putting his name behind. And now he wants to be U.S. Senator. Um, uh, you know, it, it's an open question about how much all this uh, can come back to Hanum, Patricia. Um, but certainly this is all fodder that we'll see, if not refer- Senator Raphael Warnock use, we'll see allies of his uh, weaponize this in some form or fashion. Yes. So Herschel Walker, when he um, once he got out of the NFL, uh, became both a motivational speaker. Um, he did have his um, poultry business, um, which seems to be more of a poultry licensing business rather than an actual production facility. Um, and then also uh, did get involved in a number of products that he would endorse or license or support or uh, talk about. And in some cases, it was actually part of his business. Uh, one of them was called Alleluia, uh, like an aloe-based health drink that <laughs> apparently didn't really get going very much. Um, he uh, had another health supplement that, although in advertisement said that it could help um, kind of uh, prevent cancer, it could prevent all sorts of uh diseases and illnesses and ailments in the actual FEC filings and SEC filings rather uh, with um, with the government they uh, had to disclose that medically there was no evidence to support that um, and you know more importantly though uh, probably more relevant to a campaign is that while Herschel Walker has never been a candidate he has been famous for a long time and he has been talking publicly, for decades. And I can't tell you how much of that is on video. And there are just troves of videos. And it is, this is, I promise listeners, this is the silence before uh, the chorus from Democrats. Uh, the, the Republican candidates just don't have the resources to um, pay opposition researchers to go through this, track it down, put it up on the air. But there are troves of video of Herschel Walker saying a lot of things that are fine or a little strange for a private uh, a private citizen to be saying, but as a Senate candidate, to watch that with fresh eyes as a Senate candidate saying these things, um, it is going to be a lot of ammunition for Democrats. And um, this is uh, just one example, and there there are many. And uh, I'm curious, I'm really curious to see how um, Senator Warnock um, chooses to address some of this backstory. Does he... Does he, you know, come the general election campaign? Because again, Herschel Walker, we talked about this in our last episode, but he's at 66% in the AJC poll. He is in uh, about as good a position as you can imagine with facing um, significant, serious challengers, right? Credible challengers, including the Agriculture Commissioner, Gary Black, who who's won statewide office three times and garnered millions of votes over those three campaigns. So um, Herschel Walker is looking like he is almost a near certain lock to be the GOP nominee and how Democrats choose to weaponize these, uh, whether it's Senator Warnock on the campaign trail saying this himself or using surrogates, whether it's ads from the senator's campaigns or whether it's ads from outside allies, how they try to bring up um, Herschel Walker's history of, of mental illness, right? I mean, that's a big question, whether or not that will come to play because Herschel Walker can 
try to make that backfire, right? By saying, how, how dare you um, bring up my struggles with mental illness? I've written about it. I've talked about it. I'm, I'm, I'm recovering from it. I'm still, you know, um, he can make it deeply personal. There's all sorts of different ways that this could play out. And it's going to be a very interesting and dynamic uh, general election campaign. Yeah, I think it's also going to be really important about what's happening around the country and around the world at the time. Um, Democrats will have to be really strategic about how to use this if we are finding ourselves in, um, you know, in a standoff, for example, against Vladimir Putin. If we are, um, if the country is sliding into some major economic problems, um, you don't want to look frivolous, but you do want to paint a portrait of your of your opponent as somebody not up to the job. And I think that's where something like the COVID missed while as <laughs> extremely bizarre, you know, that could be used to just paint uh, Herschel Walker as not a bad person, but not up to the job. I think that's the direction that um, the Democrats will go in on something like that. And, and again, there is just a lot out there to use. Well, now we want to briefly talk about the second debate of the trio of showdowns between David Perdue and Brian Kemp. If you saw the WSB debate on Sunday, then odds are you really don't have to see the, the Thursday night WTOC debate because they hit a lot of the same themes. They did not get under each other's skin nearly as much as they did during that Sunday night debate back at Channel 2 Action News. Um, instead, though, you still heard even more of the debate was dominated by talk about the 2020 election rather than 2020 challenges. And the governor at one point uh, mentioned that very fact. David wants to go back and talk about the past because he doesn't have a record to win the future. You know, both of them were kind of dismayed, exasperated might be a better word by each other's um, attack lines. There was one exchange that was memorable where the governor said, Lord have mercy, there's a lot of spaghetti being thrown against the wall. And look, uh, Purdue <laughs> sounded just as tired by all of Governor Kemp's responses about the 2020 election. Blah, 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 my goodness. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's more the same. And it really was. That's the best way to put it. It was a lot more of the same. We've heard all the election back and forth in the first debate. We heard a lot more about it in the second. Um, I don't really need to go into great detail about the lies being bandied by by uh, David Perdue about election fraud, about how he really won the election, all that. Um, suffice to say, the election was confirmed, retallied, counted three times, uh, confirmed by bipartisan officials. And the governor was trying to shift the focus to his record, but time and again, you know, questions from the moderators, but also um, the candidates themselves kept on returning to 2020. I'll say this. I mean, if the enduring image of the last debate was the two of the candidates pointing at each other and and getting each other's faces in a sense, the enduring image from this one was more of, it was more tempered. Both the candidates were less irascible. <laughs> they were not at each other's throats the whole time. If anything, it seemed like Governor Kemp got under David Perdue's skin uh, at certain moments by not taking the bait. But he had better comebacks this time, Governor Kemp did. Um, there was one exchange where he said, if you beat John Ossoff, why aren't you a U.S. senator? <laughs> Another one, he said, I I'm not a dictator. I can't just wave a wand. And a third, when he said, when I was frustrated about the election, I actually did something about it. I thought that was a, um, a, a telling response to David Perdue's attacks. There was um, a final 
kind of uh, sharp attack from David Perdue near the very end of the debate in his conclusion that I thought was, uh, was a new line I heard and heard before, and here it is. The worst mistake I ever made was getting Donald Trump's endorsement for this man back in 2020. He'd have never been elected without that. And this was a brutal, brutal callback to 2018 um, when David Perdue and his cousin Sonny Perdue both helped Donald Trump, convinced Donald Trump to endorse Brian Kemp over then Lieutenant Governor Casey Kinkle. So that, that was a pretty harsh line. But look, uh, did, did we break any tremendous new ground? Did any candidate come away the, the clear no winner? I'm not so sure. I'll have to, I'll have to watch it again. Um, uh, you know, but, but at this point, um, I think both of them both have some sound bites and some talking points headed into Sunday's final showdown at the Atlanta Press Club GPB Studios. And this debate will feature all five candidates for the first time. So not just David Perdue and Brian Kemp, but three lesser known challengers who share the debate stage and also share some of the airtime. So it won't be nearly as much Kemp-Perdue clash because you'll add in three other candidates to the mix. Okay, Patricia, now it's time for one of our favorite features, the listener mailbag. And this week's question comes from, let me see, that, Bradley Handwerger from Mobile, Alabama, and he asks, how come y'all say the poll is tied when someone is just two points apart? Ooh, Bradley, interesting. So I guess he's talking about um, Patricia, you know, when we have a, a candidate 28 in the poll and 26 in the poll, why do we say it's deadlocked? Do you want to take that one, Patricia? Bradley, it's a great question because when we say it's tied and you look at numbers that are not tied, what are we talking about? Yeah, we confusing. are talking about sort of the concept of being statistically tied. And that is because if somebody, when you do a poll, when anybody does a poll, there's a margin of error, meaning we understand that this poll is just a sample of the larger group, the larger electorate. That means we can't predict exactly what they'll do, but we can say within a reasonable 3%, um, and this is based on a statistic, complex statistical analysis, um, uh, what the margin of error is. Uh, so we don't want to say anything is, uh, if it's within the margin of error, then it is statistically tied. Greg? Uh, you nailed that answer as usual. Thank you, Bradley. It's so great to hear from <laughs> Thanks, you. Thanks, Brad. Bradley. And keep the questions coming. Okay. Who's up and who's down? Patricia, who's your who's up? I have got to give my who's up to Sonny Purdue. I don't think there's another 75-year-old man in Georgia who just got a $500,000 a year job other than Sonny <laughs> Perdue. Um, and he, you can just tell he is such a, uh, he's just built for this kind of stuff. He loves being out in public. He loves these big jobs uh, with lots of, um, you know, lots of ties and tentacles into government. Um, he could, he was the happiest person alive in Bonaire, except possibly Brian Kemp when he signed that tax cut bill. Um, so Sonny Perdue, I think, is uh, <laughs> right back where he wanted to be. He's one of the few members of the Trump administration who is having a, um, a good 2002, a good 2022, rather. So congratulations, Sonny Perdue. He's one of the few members of the Trump administration who made it through the Trump yeah, administration. Not he, going to jail. He, yeah, well, and also just survived the entire four years um, as a member of the cabinet. Okay, my who's up? The easy answer would be Kemp, but I'm not going to go with Kemp, uh, even though he had a he had that week we just talked about. Um, I'll go with Stacey Abrams. 
because uh, as we talked about in the last show, if there was a clear winner of that first debate between Brian Kemp and David Perdue, it was Stacey Abrams. She was taking advantage, exploiting the Republican divisions uh, with a string of press releases and fundraising appeals. I bet she raised a lot of money. Um, she is trying to be like the sort of the, the grown up in the room right now as those two Republican rivals duke it out. And um, we're about to enter the general election phase um, in, in just a month. She's ramping up her campaign activities. And as we heard earlier, she's also ramping up her uh, her feedback on campaign issues that depart from her favorites, which is expanding Medicaid and, and to a degree, um, gun issues. So, Patricia, who is your who's down? My who's down? Um, I don't want to go to this well too often, but I have to give it to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, a recent interview, a uh, very recent interview uh, with Congresswoman Greene has her talking about uh, the Catholic Church and the fact that it has uh, been controlled by Satan recently. And that is just extremely off the wall and really quite offensive to Catholics. So <laughs> um, there are uh, millions of Catholics in Georgia. I think it. Um, uh, was just another of many statements that just are so far off the wall, you can't quite believe it. I've been up in Marjorie Taylor Greene's 14th congressional district, quite conservative, um, but she has managed to draw seven candidates against her in her race, um, and uh, or rather eight candidates, five Republicans, uh, three Democrats, and she's um, she's going to have a race on her hands, whether it's close, will be up to the 14th congressional district. But she has, um, with her own statements, has managed to draw a number of candidates who are coming after her job. So she's my, she's my, who's down this week. And usually we have a no Marjorie rule for this segment of the show, but we will, we will exempt you for this one because that was a, that was a, a new level for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, my who's down would be Gary Black. Um, as we mentioned, he's the agriculture commissioner. He's not some nobody in Georgia Republican politics. Um, he has garnered millions of votes over the last dozen years in electoral politics. He is a well-known quantity in the Georgia GOP. And yet in the AJC poll, he was at just 7%. And um, when we asked about favorable and unfavorables, there were about a quarter of voters had a favor of, these are likely Republican voters, by the way, about a quarter of likely GOP voters had a favorable view of him. Um, a low a low percentage had an unfavorable view, but almost two thirds didn't know enough to have an opinion, um, and that just speaks to a the celebrity and the the power behind Herschel Walker's name. But b it is really hard to go up, even if you're a statewide candidate, even if you've got um, you know what you think is a really solid base uh, of support. It is really hard to run for these premier offices like Senate and Governor because it's a different ball game. And everyone who's done it has seen it, right? Um, we've, we've talked about insurance commissioner John Oxendine, who had who went into a campaign for governor uh, a dozen years ago with the same sort of um, confidence, and uh, it didn't work out well for him. And and you're right now you're seeing this for Gary Black. Things could change, but it would take a sort of a near miracle for him uh, to to even force Herschel Walker into a runoff. Well, you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday, and occasionally some special episodes as well, like you had earlier this week. We will see you then on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. 
Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.